Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. We're considering the words of the Holy Spirit about the unique gift of apostleship, one that there's a lot of confusion about. This is a part two, so if you missed part one, it's really foundational to this message. Please get it. They had a unique role in founding the universal church, and we're looking at what that role is. Acts 5, 12 to 16. I'll begin by reading the text. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their numbers so, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. They were all being healed. This historical passage reveals that the church of Jesus Christ was founded on the ministry of the apostles of Jesus Christ. It shows the apostles in action. It shows them performing their foundational role. And in that sense, it allows us to launch into other texts that teach about the apostles but it's a great glimpse of their ministry. They had a ministry to the believers. This is showing their ministry also to unbelievers. Last time we began learning that there are three basic reasons that the apostles of Jesus were foundational to the church and not found in the church today. The first reason was they were uniquely chosen by Christ at the beginning of the church. We covered this last time. Christ's individual and direct choice of each apostle, laying hands on them, or in the case of Paul, coming to meet him on the road and specifically commissioning him to go to the Gentiles. They were to be with him physically in his ministry on earth. They had to be with him, listening to him teach the parables, with him in the upper room, with him in the other discourses that he had. He wanted them to touch him and see him after the resurrection. He invited them to come and handle him. That's who these men were. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it uh, required, therefore, to be alive when Christ was alive, or shortly thereafter in Paul's case, to be witnesses to those first century people. Historically, Jesus chose each one of them. Jesus commissioned them as a group. Jesus directly sent them to spread His Word, His Word, the words from His mouth. So they were His ambassadors. They carried His message into the world. He didn't go into the world to preach the gospel. He didn't write the books of the New Testament. He had these men do that. Indeed, that is what the term apostle means. They were Jesus' ambassadors. Another way you could say that is they were His legal spokesmen. They bore witness to where you, the way you would bear witness in, of testimony inside of a courtroom. That is why Jesus could say about apostles in Matthew 10, 40, he who receives you, speaking to those apostles, receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. In other words, I'm the Father's apostle, and they are my apostles. And so when you receive them, you've received my message. When you receive me, you receive the message of God the Father who sent me. We started all of this last time. We also started the second reason last time 
and that is that the apostles were uniquely attested by miracles. The apostles as a group were uniquely attested by miracles. We really pick up in the middle of verse 15 or with verse 15. We've kind of grouped verse 15 with some of the earlier verses that speak of the miracles. We're looking at these miracles because here is an incredible outpouring of miracles. And this is, should be very obvious to everybody who reads Acts that these miracles were flowing from the apostles. It was part of the apostles' ongoing ministry, public ministry, to show these miracles to unbelievers, to the unbelieving Jews at this point. And the growth that was occurring because of the witnessing of these miracles and the hearing of the preaching was enormous. We talked about this last time also. It was so great that at this point, Peter, he was so popular that in his healing ministry, the sick, in many cases, couldn't get close enough to him in order for him to give them the personal attention, the laying on of hands or whatever he would choose to do. They couldn't get his attention. They maybe couldn't even touch him. And so the, the crowds were pouring out into the streets there in Jerusalem. And it seemed to them the only way that they could get Peter to heal them was if as he walked by, must have been a sunny day, his shadow would be floating over the sick person. And as his shadow floated over the sick person, not 24 hours later, but on the spot, he was healed or she was healed. What we're reading about here, honestly, if you just pause and try to envision the picture, is astounding, isn't it? Peter's shadow is healing dozens, nay, maybe hundreds of very sick people. That is how extensive and right out in the open the apostles' healing ministry was. Right out in the sunshine, nothing in back rooms, nothing with hidden motives. They're just pouring out of Peter at this time. Verse 16 indicates that the news of his healing powers attracted people from the surrounding villages around Jerusalem, Jerusalem being the more central and the larger city. And just like we have today, larger cities have smaller little towns around them. There were smaller towns. Of course, they heard about it. What did they do? They got up or they got the person that was sick. They carried the bed if they had to. They picked up the pallet and the friends or the family, they brought them to, where is Peter? Uh, there he is. Can we get close? No. Let's at least lay him there in the road so Peter's shadow will hit him when he comes by. Astounding thinking about that. Incredible healing powers. So these people getting healed, listen to this, were not followers of Jesus. This is not the Jerusalem church. It's specific here. He was healing people that heard about it. These are mostly unbelievers being healed. The apostles had a very important ministry to unbelievers. When we say unbelievers, they're not believers yet in Jesus. They're believers in God probably in some general sense as as Jewish people. But they were unbelievers because they had not yet placed their faith on Jesus. They were not saved. They didn't have saving faith, but they were being healed. And that is why we see that when people say, today say, you have to have more faith, when they had a little faith and they didn't get healed, and a faith healer says, you have to have more faith, you know that that healing ministry does not match the healing ministry you read about in the Bible. That is not how God does it. God does not taunt people. He heals people. God is gracious. The way this is worded, it indicates that Large crowds of people were seeking healing for themselves or their loved ones. I mean, when you are sick, when you are really sick, 
You know about this. You know when the doctors cannot help you and they've kind of said, this is the way you're going to be for the rest of your life. You go to a doctor, you go to another doctor, you go to a third doctor, you go to anybody, you start reading anything online, yes? You start believing things that aren't even true because you're hopeless. You'll do anything if there's a miraculous healer, one who's really, truly healing. I mean, you'd, you'd go anywhere, right? You'd, you'd go to, as we say, Timbuktu. I don't even know if that's a real place. <laughs> you just go wherever he is. And if you love someone, you just carry them there, yes? This is what you do. What is life without your health? It's so difficult. So these miracles, please read it for yourself. They're public. They're undeniable. This is not like our faith healers today. And they benefit all kinds of diseases. They don't have to qualify to enter into the healing service and come up front. They don't need to be screened. Is that the kind that I think I can heal? Nothing about these healings was hidden Nothing about it was dubious. It made the unbelieving Jewish leaders jealous. It was so clear and true. No one had any doubts about the power of God at work. We're starting to see here at this point in the book of Acts the effect of the gospel as it's kind of resonating and reverberating outside of Jerusalem. Everything we've read about so far has been kind of in Jerusalem, in the city. This is where it was supposed to start. This is where Jesus wanted the witness of his resurrection and his death to start. It's got to start right there. That's the city of David. He's the son of David. This is where his kingdom will be. This is where the witness goes. This is where it had to be. But now it's starting to reverberate out. Jesus predicted this, remember? You'll be my witnesses, what? Both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. That was the order in which it was going to flow. It all came out from Jerusalem. We say, Jerusalem's a pretty important piece of real estate, isn't it? It's the most fought over piece of real estate on the planet. And this is where it starts, right here. Christians had their beginning right here. The gospel starts right here. That's important. It shows you how important that is. So they're curious people out there, and now the gospel is beginning to spill over. It's beginning to run in different directions. It's getting outside of Jerusalem. And and you can see that the gospel spread in large part because of the ministry of the apostles. Because the apostles were doing something nobody else on the planet could do. They were doing something nobody else saw as done. There were always people willing to take money to say they had some way of healing you, but it just didn't work the same way. This worked. It doesn't take any faith at all to realize that the last 27 people that hit Peter's shadow got healed, I'm laying down right there, fighting off the other people. That's my spot. Hope he doesn't turn and go down that road. I hope he just keeps going down this road. Otherwise, we got to get the pallet, but we got to run down that road wherever he is. You know, one person I remember, a mother in the Christian school I was teaching in, was told, You're healed. The symptoms hadn't gone away, but she was healed. And she came and told me she's all excited about it. I'm healed. I said, well, do you feel better? She said, no, the symptoms haven't gone away yet. I said, of course, you know me. I always get in trouble. I said, you're not healed. <laughs> Boy, was she angry with me. You're, you're, you're making me doubt the promise of God. That's not God. God doesn't play yo-yo with your faith. In Acts 9, Acts 10, and Acts 11... We will see the gospel push out even further into the surrounding regions. It will just keep going out from Jerusalem. 
Now notice, if you look carefully, it says that the apostles signs and wonders, and here if you look technically at it, it says were taking place. If you have a good Bible translation, that's the NASB, were taking place. That reflects the imperfect tense in the Greek language. The imperfect tense talks about something in the past that didn't just happen, it kept happening. It was ongoing action. Constant stream of signs and miracles and wonders by the apostles. They didn't need to have a miracle service. They were going on. And notice they happened at the hands of the apostles. Why the hands? Because the hands are the things that God gave you to do things, right? Some of you have much better hands than I do. (laughs) My hands don't make things too well. But I know that they're supposed to make things, right? You're supposed to be able to accomplish things with your hands. And so God said to make sure that everybody knows that I'm attesting those men and not some other men or some other women or whatever, but those men, to make sure that you know I am with those men and I want you to listen to those men, I'm going to make sure that the healing happens by their hands. That was the normal way. And then by the shadow, in Peter's case. It's all connected directly back to them. You can't mistake it. Who healed them? They knew exactly who healed them. That was Peter. That was John. That was James. That was Philip. That's who healed them. That's very important to notice that. All of the apostles, it says all of the apostles performed sign miracles. Not just Peter and John. Yes, they're more prominent, but all the apostles were doing it. In fact, the requirement for apostleship was to perform miraculous signs. Because apostles were delivering from the Holy Spirit of God new revelation, teaching that had never been given in the world before, teaching that was coming through Christ in the heavens from the Spirit that He sent into the world. Now, these chosen men, and they were teaching the new covenant doctrine. It was not given in the Old Testament. It was new revelation, brand new revelation, never before given revelation. So God attested them because it had not been given before. Today, when we pass on what they had, we're not giving new revelation. We we may be passing, it may be new to the person that we're speaking to, but it's not new in the world. Paul had to remind that Corinthian church that he had a hard time with of the proof of his apostolic ministry. You read through 2 Corinthians and you see Paul, because of his apostleship, was untimely born. Remember that? His was not the normal kind of apostleship. He was the last one ever to see Jesus Christ alive, the last new person. And he said, mine was like like a a miscarriage. It was out of time. It was at the wrong time. Because of that, sometimes people didn't think Paul was all that impressive. And maybe he's not really an apostle. And he basically wrote all of 2 Corinthians. It's a very emotional letter that defends his apostleship. And towards the end of that letter in 2 Corinthians 12, 11 and 12, Paul wrote, the signs, listen, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Corinthians, you should have no doubt at all about me. I did it right in front of your eyes. A true apostle does these signs, and I did them. Some folks there, obviously, Corinth minimized Paul's apostolic powers and office. Paul and the Corinthians, though, knew that only apostles did these miracles. Let me say that again. Only apostles did these miracles. Otherwise, those miracles could not possibly have marked him out as an apostle. If, if lots of people did miracles besides the apostles, Paul couldn't say the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. Someone would say, no, there are other people that do signs and do miracles. That doesn't mean you're an apostle. That wouldn't have helped this case at all. 
charismatic or Pentecostal people today typically mistakenly think that in the book of Acts, lots of different kinds of Christians were doing miracles. That is not true. The book of Hebrews chapter 2 verses 3 and 4 confirms this. It says this, how will we escape, talking about escaping the judgment of God, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, this salvation that came from Christ, the message of the cross and all of that? How are you going to escape the wrath of God apart from Christ? You can't. By the way, that tells you salvation is only in Jesus, right? But then it goes on. After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, the Lord means the Lord Jesus and his earthly ministry. Then it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Heard who? Jesus. Verse 4 of Hebrews 2. God also testifying with them, those who heard, the apostles, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. What is he saying? Christ came and spoke the salvation. Then those who heard it, the apostles, they spoke it. And to make sure everyone knew this was God's message, God threw in his testimony. What was that? Signs and wonders and miracles. If everybody else was doing that, what would be the special thing about listening to the apostles? God confirmed them because they were the authoritative legal spokesman for Jesus Christ. Underscore this. The early church was not a miracle-working church. The early church was not a miracle-working church. It just had miracle-working apostles. That's what you read about in Acts, the eyewitnesses. Everywhere in Acts that you see miracles happening by the apostles' personal touch or contact Not by the the touch of other believers. You realize God is attesting these special men. Only by the apostles or men the apostles directly laid their hands on and commissioned them. Only by them do you see any miracles in the book of Acts. Stephen was one of the seven and they laid their hands on him. And only after the apostles laid their hands on him did Stephen perform a miracle. And Philip the same thing in Acts chapter 8 and verse 6. If you read Acts 2.43, just rewinding a little bit, just so you can see a little bit of this, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, it says, on the the very beginning of uh, the church, and many wonders and signs were taking place, and it's very specific, through the apostles. That's who did it. That's who did it in Acts 2. If you go to Acts chapter 9, the church has spread beyond, out into Judea, even a little bit beyond that. And Peter is up in Lydda, and he's up in Joppa, and Peter healed a cripple. He raised a person from the dead, and the entire area was amazed because none of the other Christians could do that. When a person in Troas was listening to a sermon that Paul gave that evidently was so long, the dude fell out of the window and died below, None of the other Christians in that worship service went and laid hands on him and raised him. Paul did. Why? Because Paul was an apostle. Oh, thank God you got that. Of Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14.3, it says, Therefore they spent a long time there, this is in the Galatian region, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. Barnabas is called an apostle also in Acts 14.14. 14. 
Acts 19, 11, it says God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, carrying handkerchiefs from him and healing. Some of the phony faith healers try to imitate that these days, like, you know, just hold something up to the TV set and it'll work for you. And what'll work is you're going to give up your money because you're going to think, I have to believe I was healed. I have to believe something changed. And I got to send in money to show I have enough faith. And if the the symptoms don't come, but I have to believe, otherwise it's my fault. That's what they said. What a guilt trip. Here again in Acts 5, who is it doing the miracles? You can read it for yourself. You see it right there. It's in black and white. It's not an interpretation. It's there. It's the apostles did it. And God even uses Peter's shadow. What is up with that? Well, there was a belief in those days that a person's shadow was an extension of that person. We kind of... Hold that a little bit today, you know. Someone gets in your sunshine when you're out sunny. You're like, hey, buddy, move on, you know. You, you like to see the silhouette of your shadow, see what you look like. May I put on a little weight. This, doesn't, this is not a good angle, you know. God took that belief and he allowed Peter in particular as the leader of the apostles, the more famous one of them that the people would know about from the surrounding areas, to perform extraordinary healing powers. All the apostles healed, and when they healed, it was instant. It was miraculous. There's no explanation for it, naturally. It was complete. It wasn't partial. And here's the thing. It was permanent. The symptoms didn't return two months later. Apostles were gifted to heal, a supernatural ability to instantly heal, on the spot, no fanfare. No, no big show, no drumming up all of the emotions and people swaying and, you know, don't you believe? Don't you believe? I believe, I believe. That's faith healing. That's healing by faith, not by God. That's drumming up the suggestion and the power of suggestion can be great over the body. I'm not a doctor. I don't know these things, but I've been told this. There's no hyped up emotional healing services here. No lecture about how little faith you have. Peter's healing ministry was particularly singled out because he was the lead apostle. It also just appears he was more well-known, and so they flocked to him. Peter all around, people all around Peter. Peter had become famous, and it was just getting started. He would become more famous. Isn't it amazing what God did for Peter? God really put him in that way. Peter had to be humbled. Peter had to go through humility because Jesus must have known this was coming for Peter. But he had to go through all the humility so that when he became famous, it didn't go to his head. And it didn't. You see, he continued to walk humbly with God. Of course, Peter gave all glory to God, right? What he was probably telling them is similar to what he told them back in chapter 3, verse 12. Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we made this man walk when he healed the lame man. Peter is saying, I didn't actually do this. God just wants you to listen to me so that I can tell you Jesus was raised from the dead and it's the name Jesus that's healing. Peter gave all glory to Christ. Why? Because all the power was coming from God because Peter was not a faith healer just as Jesus was not a faith healer. They healed not by faith but by the power of God, the genuine power of God. Later in the book of Acts, we will see Paul's handkerchiefs used for healing. Jesus himself testified in Luke 
chapter 8, verse 44, when a woman reached out, touched the garment of his, uh, his cloak, remember? And he was like, power went out from me. They knew. The Holy Spirit was working through them. They were aware. They could sense it. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit working his true gift of healing instantly, completely, permanently for all kinds of diseases. Ones that other people could tell were healed, not just the kind like, well, I healed you in your mind. (laughs) What was wrong with my brain? I don't know. There's something deep and very seriously wrong with you, brother, and now it's all healed. (laughs) You know, whatever is wrong with you is no small thing. But we can't tell. Was he healed? Well, you must believe it was a healing. You must. Otherwise, you're an unbeliever. You don't want to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, do you? The way to tell counterfeit right, is to hold it up next to the what? The original, right? Get the little things out, eyeball it. What's going on today, it don't look nothing like the book of Acts. Do you agree? They're shenanigans. They're very skilled at it. They actually go into a lot of work to make these things work. I'm not saying God can't heal today and it responds to our prayer. Of course he can. That's not the gift of healing. Peter was not a faith healer. Faith is very weak in what it can do. But God is very powerful in what he can do. Do you remember Jesus? He healed how many lepers? Ten? How many turned back and said thank you? So that means nine weren't believers. They didn't have any faith. Zip. Zilch. And God still healed them. Christ healed them. And, and there was a report in Jesus' healing ministry that, that kind of described the kind of diseases back then that were being healed. And this probably pertains to what's going on with the apostles. It says in Matthew 4.24, the news about Jesus spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Paralytics, lepers, raising the dead. Things that can't be explained any other way. Here, too, the apostles are casting out demons. We saw that in the life of Jesus. There was incredible demonic influence that was going on there. In the book of Acts, we still see that demonic possession is real. Acts chapter 8, verse 7 reveals extensive casting out of demons. Acts chapter 19, verses 12 and following gives a case of demonic possession. Demons are real. Demons are still in the world. Demon possession still goes on in the world. It's a real thing. The Bible describes demons as fallen angels or evil spirits or here unclean spirits. According to Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41, they are the devil's angels. They fell from their state of holiness that God had given to them when he created them. They fell from their original holy position and they followed the devil so they're his angels. Not all demons are loose. We're not going to do a demonology this morning. Some are free to move about to harass the human race. Some do that by possession. Some do that by harming physically. Some of the physical, not all, but some of the physical problems come from the spirit world. It's not unscientific to believe in the spirit world. You can't get this world without some world that made this world, and so you have to back up logically into a spirit world. In Luke 13, 11, it shows evil spirits can inflict physical diseases. People open themselves up to demonic possession. 
The Bible's not 100% clear about how that happens, but evidently it's very hard for demons to take possession of a body. Demon possession involves two uh, necessary features. One is that the demon comes as a spirit being, as a localized spirit being. God's not localized. The evil spirit is. He has some boundary to his existence. He comes and he lives inside the body, the host of the person, or in some cases, an animal, as we saw with a swine. The second feature is when they come in, they don't come in to share. They come in to dominate. They come in to take over. They come in to possess. That's why we call it demon possession. Why are some people demon-possessed? Evidently, they do something to open up their life to false religions where demons are working or to the occult where they're basically saying, I want to tap into that power by opening up to that. There is a cost. And sometimes that happens with children. Jesus cast out demons by the power of God. He called it the finger of God. The finger of God cast them out. Jesus healed diseases and did that. Jesus had signs. Jesus had miracles. Jesus did his miracles for the same reason, that people would look at him, that people would understand who he is, that people would listen to the preaching and the message that he had. Just a couple of examples. In John 3, 2, Nicodemus from the Sanhedrin, he came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher because no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. That puts in a nutshell the whole point. Nobody can do the signs you do unless God is with him. That's the point. In John 6, 14, it records, therefore, when the people saw the sign which Jesus had performed, that's the feeding of the 5,000, they said, this is truly the prophet who is supposed to come into the world, the one that Moses talked about. It was a no-brainer. John seven thirty one. many of the crowd believed in Jesus, and they were saying, when the Messiah comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? How is anyone in the future going to outdo Jesus with miracles? Get the connection. Connect it. God attests the apostles because of their testimony about Jesus. Remember what Jesus said? Acts 1.8, right at the very beginning. You will be my what? Witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So those miracles would accompany them all the way to the ends of the earth. That's what Peter preached in his first sermon. This Jesus God raised up again from the dead to which We are all witnesses. That's who we are. We are witnesses. We saw it. I know we talk about witnessing today, but none of us are witnesses in that sense. Not one of us. Peter said the same thing. If there's any doubt, listen to Acts 10, 41. Jesus appeared, these are Peter's words, Jesus appeared not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is, to us, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. That's so clear. If you didn't eat and drink with Jesus during those 40 days after he was raised from the dead, you're not an apostle. You're not a witness. Obviously, anyone who claims it today is not an apostle. Who would actually give credence to someone 2,000 years removed saying, oh, well, let me tell you what happened there. I'm an eyewitness. They're debating in the Supreme Court now whether something 30 or 40 years ago even matters. 2,000 years. Nobody's going to believe that. It's only those who touched, only those who saw, only those who heard. He doesn't add smell, but he must have smelled too. 1 John 1.1. This is how John begins his letter. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, 
what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands. Do you hear him emphasizing that? There are all kinds of phonies back then saying, well, let me tell you what the message of Jesus is. And he's like, wait a minute. We were there. You ever get bothered when someone shares their opinion about something you have more firsthand information about and they're acting like an expert? You know, like, well, let me tell you how it was. But you weren't even there. You've heard it from someone who heard it from someone, and now you're the expert. Please be careful with that. I mean, that's what the media majors in. Don't be like that. The apostles knew Jesus Christ, and God threw his weight behind their testimony, not people today. Second, that's the second reason. Third reason. I have 11 minutes. Third reason. Third reason. They had unique foundational authority from Jesus Christ. The apostles had unique foundational authority from Jesus Christ. If you go back to verse 13, you can see the effect of the apostles here. It says in verse 13, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. Now, verse 13 is a little bit confusing. There are different groups of people that are mentioned in verses 12 and 13. The the they in verse 12 includes the apostles along with the, the believers in Jesus. They're not even yet called Christians, but the believers of Jesus, they're all Jews. They're meeting in Solomon's portico. And so that's that's the they. The word people, laos, in verses 12 and 13, refers to the Jews in general outside of the church, the unbelievers. They held the apostles in high esteem. Of course they did, because the apostles had a ministry even to the unbelievers. Then there's the term, the rest, the loipoi. That's a little more difficult to interpret. Probably these are the unbelieving Jews who really didn't want to get anywhere near the apostles or the church that the apostles had founded. They heard about what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. They dropped dead. They were disingenuous. They were hypocritical. They had come into the assembly where the apostles were. The apostles exposed them through the power of the Holy Spirit, dropped dead. Well, that news circulated out, I'm sure, And so they didn't dare want to associate. Some of you have joined in. They didn't want to get near because they knew they didn't really believe. And so they were staying away from them for protection probably. They knew that if best they had half-hearted allegiance. You know, they had a curiosity about the faith healers. But they weren't committed yet. And so they stayed away. And then, of course, there were still large numbers of people who were saying, no, this is true, I want to get in. And they were coming in, and we saw that in verse 14, great numbers that were believing in him. So you have these different groups there. Dr. Barrett, in his Acts commentary, tries to describe what the scene in Solomon's portico looked like. Quote, the verse suggests that the assembled Christians formed a distinctive group on their own, separate from those who moved about the portico, the portico of Solomon, and that to join the group was understood to be virtually equivalent to becoming a Christian. So they had so the 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 the, the uh, Temple Mount area is enormous in size, and then there's the Portico of Solomon, and that's very large. So the Christians assembled in an area, and the apostles were teaching, and some just said, "I'm staying away from that. I'm not going anywhere near that." That's bad for church growth, isn't it? Church discipline's bad for church growth. A lot of churches today won't do church discipline because they say if we discipline someone publicly and say that they haven't repented of their sins, then folks are going to run away and they're never going to come. That's true. That's true. We actually saw that in our first church discipline. After we did that, there were some attendees, I think from Johns Hopkins or something like that, and they saw this thing and they're like, I'm out of here. These people are judgmental. They're unloving, blah, blah, blah. 
It's like, okay, well, we tried to be as gentle and patient as we could. But actually, kind of the opposite's happening here. Did you notice? They, they, they disciplined two in the first few verses there, verses one through whatever it was, 11. And then what happened? People pouring into the church because God uses a pure church. You see that? Because God's power is at work in a pure church. Keep that in mind when you think about church philosophy and ministry philosophy. It's part of what we're trying to promote in this grace advance, this philosophy of ministry that says, do what God says and let him take care of the size of your church and all the rest of that. So the people of the Jews, as unbelievers, knew who the apostles were, and they held them in high esteem, notice. That's a word that actually means praise or regard. It's used in Acts 10.46 and 2 Corinthians 10.15 to mean that. This is not said of the other church leaders. This is not said later of the seven. This is not said of, of, of women leaders or any, anyone else in that congregation. This was said of the apostles. The apostles were unique. The populace of the Jews, whether responding to the gospel or staying away from the followers of Jesus, knew these apostles were unique. And here's the point. They viewed them as the leaders and the starters and the founders of this whole movement. It wasn't even called Christianity at this point. Whatever this movement was, the way, the followers of Jesus, the disciples... Whatever it was, the founders, the starters, if you looked at it from the negative perspective, the instigators were these apostles. There's a popular teaching about apostles today that the reason they're called apostles is that they're church planters. It's true that apostles did plant churches, but that's not the right way to understand them. They didn't plant churches. They planted the entire church, the whole universal church. They're the foundation of the whole thing. Their primary role was to establish the Christian religion through their testimony about Christ. The Christian faith is built on the witness and testimony of the apostles. Your faith, my faith, is built on the foundation of the apostles. Their unique authority and foundational role is seen in many other New Testament ver- uh, verses. I'm just going to give you some selections. In Acts 2.42, it shows the believers immediately dedicated themselves, it says, to the apostles' didache, to their doctrine, to their teaching. They were in authority. They weren't dedicating themselves to anyone else's doctrine, just the apostles. It's what they listened to. It's where the authority of Christ spoke to them. That, that same devotion the believers gave to the Old Testament scriptures, they now gave to the apostles' instruction. Jesus had given the apostles a unique promise in the upper room discourse in John 14, 26. Jesus said to them, the helper, the Holy Spirit, is going to teach you all things and bring to your remembrance the things that I said to you. That's a promise that could only be given to people that actually heard verbally the teachings of Jesus. Only they could recall the teachings of Jesus. And they did, and that's why we have the four gospels and all the teaching that comes from that. That is why also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 6, Paul had to remind the Thessalonians, the church there, he said, I I could have asserted my authority as an apostle. But he said, I chose not to be. I chose to be gentle among you. But I could have because I'm an apostle. According to Ephesians 3 and verse 5, apostles directly received revelation just like a prophet does. They received that revelation And then they spoke it. 
Receiving new revelation about the Christian faith is not possible today. Since that would mean that, that the church hasn't known all of the truth through its 2,000 years. As if Jesus left them ill-equipped all this time. The message would be lacking. During the Reformation, they would not know what Christianity is fully about. 300 A.D., 200 A.D., 100 A.D. They wouldn't know what the Christian faith was about because the truth wasn't all given. That's what it would mean if new revelation were being given today. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 clearly teaches that the apostles are the foundation for the church. Ephesians 2.20, I'll read it. He's talking about a spiritual house here. The church has a spiritual house. It kind of views it as a house that's still under construction and it's growing up. And what will this house be? It'll be a house of worship. It'll be a temple. And then it says there in verse 20 of Ephesians 2, having been, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and New Testament prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. I often say when I come to this passage, I'm not a builder, but I know enough about this. The first thing they did, the ancients did, the first thing when they wanted to build something is lay the cornerstone. Why the cornerstone? Because it gave the dimensions where all of the rest of the foundation would be. And then the second thing they built was the foundation. Why? Because everything else that was going to be built (coughs) was going to be built on a foundation. Yes? Some builder out there, give me an amen. I hope it doesn't work a different way. You put the cornerstone down. You lay the foundation. The cornerstone was the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. The foundation was the apostles. I know you're not supposed to be an idiot and build the foundation on the 21st floor. Crash, crash, crash. doesn't work that way. And that's an explicit text that says the apostles were foundational to the church. After the last apostle died, John somewhere around A.D. 100, there have been no more apostles. And if you read early church history, we had a course on it yesterday, if you read the writings of the faithful believers, none of them think that they're apostles, and none think that there are any other apostles alive in their day. They write with humility and refer them back to the Old Testament and back to the teaching of the apostles. These apostles carried distinctive authority in the church, unrivaled by any group. Every single book you have in your New Testament was either written directly by the hand of an apostle or by someone who was following an apostle around and writing down what that apostle's teachings were about. Jude himself wouldn't even write his letter without giving his connection of authority to James, the Lord's brother, who was an apostle. Samuel Waldron has written a book that I wish I had written. It's one of these that you've written. You're like, I was wanting to write a book like that. But it's a great book. It's called To Be Continued, and it has a question mark. So it's a question, to, to be continued? And he writes this, the final witness to the closed character of the apostolate is the closed character of the canon. The canon is uh, what which should be in the Bible. The entire Christian church acknowledges that no new book has been added to the canon of the New Testament for almost 20 centuries. There is no debate about this, he writes. Indeed, a right understanding of the nature of canonical books would not permit any new book to be added to the New Testament. Here is the reason. The New Testament gains its authority from the endorsement of the apostles and the principle of apostolic authority. 
This is so, first, because the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and second, because only an apostle of Christ can claim to speak the word of Christ. Since Christ is the supreme authority over the church, since Christ wrote no book, since only apostles of Christ can speak for Christ, and since the New Testament claims authority over the church, this authority can only be grounded in apostolic authority. Thus, an apostle had either to write or endorse each book of the New Testament. The fact of the closed character of the canon therefore assumes and implies the closed character of the apostolate, end quote. Guys, all of Christianity is built on these men, all of it. When the church began, there were 120 followers of Jesus by the fourth century Christianity had filled the Roman Empire so much so that in the latter part of that century and into the 5th century it became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Today hundreds of millions, maybe into the billions, well we know not everyone that claims the name of Christ is a true Christian, but hundreds of millions stand on the foundation and testimony of the apostles given in the 1st century. That is not repeatable any more than Jesus dying on the cross would be repeatable. To misunderstand this is to misunderstand the historic Christian faith. God used them to found Christ's church. The church was built on their foundation. When you fast forward to Revelation 21 and verse 14, The holy city, the new Jerusalem, representing the bride of Christ, has come down. And it says in verse 14 of Revelation 21, And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. They're foundational. And they will be into all of eternity. Brothers and sisters, they sealed their testimony in their own blood. Who are true apostles? The ones who bore their testimony in Jerusalem and then in Judea and then in Samaria and then to the rest of the world. The ones who had unique display of miracles following them everywhere they went. Those who founded the church in the beginning due to their eyewitness testimony of Jesus, which only they could bear who wrote authoritative New Testament documents that the rest of the church is required to believe and teach and obey, and then most who were killed for their witness, sealing their testimony in their blood, those are true apostles of Jesus Christ. The rest, well, you fill in the blank. They're phony. There are no true apostles in the church today, nor have there been for 19 centuries. This conclusion is demanded of all followers of Jesus Christ. I'm very glad, I say that honestly, for some in the charismatic movement. Their Christianity is genuine, their zeal for Christ is genuine, their prayers are heartfelt, their witness is contagious, they love the Holy Spirit, they love Christ, they believe in a supernatural God. We should be like that in that regard. I hope they continue in their zeal, I hope they continue in their zest for spiritual gifts, their belief that God still does miracles as he chooses today in the world. 
But it is not only wrong to call people today apostles, it is dangerous. And it confuses the Christian faith. Jude said the Christian faith, in verse 3 of his letter, was once for all, once for all, delivered to the saints. Dr. Thomas Edgar, my former Greek professor at Capital Seminary, wrote a meticulous book on this subject, Miraculous Gifts, and I'll close with a quote from him. Most Christians, including many charismatics, agree that apostles are no longer present in the church. This admission denies the basic contention that all spiritual gifts are permanently given to the church. Anyone who considers apostleship to be a spiritual gift and also believes that apostles were present only in the early church has already admitted that at least one gift has ceased. Therefore, the basic premise that all gifts are present today is denied. He goes on, any attempt to claim that the office of apostle has ceased but not the gift of apostleship is no solution since such a distinction cannot be demonstrated from the Bible. Even if such a distinction were true, the basic premise that all gifts are permanent is still denied since any indication that apostles in the fullest sense of the New Testament apostle do not exist today is evidence that the Spirit is not distributing gifts in exactly the same way as in the early church. In other words, this demands that all of us be cessationists, not continuists. He goes on, merely to claim that apostles in some sense, other than those in the New Testament, are present today cannot be accepted as evidence. It must be shown that this is the full gift of apostle. But if it is not the same as that in the New Testament, there's no basis for such a deduction. We should be clear about this doctrine. As this movement third wave Pentecostal charismatic movement is one of the most powerful movements in the world today. And we don't want to stop any genuine zeal for Jesus, but we need to make clear Christianity is historical and there's some things that are not repeatable. The cessationist doctrine is the one the Spirit of God teaches and it's the one that you need to believe. That doesn't quench our enthusiasm for the Spirit, amen? That shouldn't quench our zeal for evangelism. We shouldn't let the pendulum swing and be stiff and be apathetic. We don't want that. We can always learn things from other brothers, yes? But this is something that we need to hold to and we need to explain patiently to other people. We pray that God will use this two-part message in that way. Father in heaven, thank you for the careful expository listening from your people this day. May you bless their hearts to the degree that their hearts were open, their minds were active, and their faith was believing. Help them to be good Bereans and go back and study your word and see whether these things are so. We pray it in Christ's name, amen.